guys, welcome back to Just the Good Stuff. This is your host, Rachel Mansfield, and today's episode is so, so incredibly special to me. We have our fertility doctor, Dr. Eric Foreman, here to give us a little fertility 101. Dr. Foreman is a reproductive endocrinologist and the medical laboratory director over at Columbia University Fertility Center, and he is the gem of a human who helped us get pregnant with both Ezra and Ezra's little brother. I know that fertility can be such a taboo topic and to be able to open up this conversation and have Dr. Foreman answer so many of your questions and really give us the full rundown on fertility treatment is something I wish I personally had going into the start of our journey. I think this is such an important topic to really openly talk about and communicate to one another. You know, it really helps bond moms everywhere and dads. And you are not alone if you're going through fertility, whatever, wherever your journey is. And something that is so important to remember while listening to this episode is how different everyone's journey is. What I love about Dr. Foreman is how optimistic he is about every single patient. He is truly the best of the best. And we feel so lucky to have him as our doctor. He answers my crazy emails so fast. Like sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, how do you do it? He is there to help in any way he can. I still call him about questions even with my pregnancy and he is always open to helping me, which is just so, so, so appreciated. And Dr. Foreman customizes the fertility treatment for each individual patient. I know a lot of the times you guys have said you've gone to other fertility centers and you kind of just felt like another like number at like a deli counter. And I don't know the names of these fertility centers. This is not to say, any, say anything bad about other centers as long as people are starting their beautiful families. That's what matters. But it was really important to Jordan and I to find someone who treated our journey very differently and wanted to get to know us and really customize something that works for for us and our family. And Dr. Foreman does that. And him and his other colleagues all at Columbia University Fertility Center are all amazing. And that's one of my favorite parts about going there is that you are filled with so, so, so many awesome doctors and nurses and the whole team. It's just, it's the place like I actually look forward to going to. So I can't thank them enough for all that they do for our family. And if you are interested in hearing more in particular about mine and Jordan's fertility journey with Ezra and his brother, head on over to episode four on the podcast where I chat with my friend Abby Cannon. Um, about getting pregnant with Ezra and Abby also shares her fertility journey. But I also have a handful of blog posts that dive into our fertility journeys as well. So I'll link to those over in the show notes for you guys. If you do enjoy this episode, I would love to hear from you guys. Please feel free to share the episode with anyone you know that may be starting their own fertility treatment, maybe they're in the thick of it, or anyone that you feel that this episode would really resonate with. And of course, if you have a moment and would like to rate and review the podcast over on iTunes, that would be so tremendously helpful. Thank you guys so, so much for your support as always. Before we dive into today's episode, I'd like to take a moment to talk about probiotics. Yep, one of my ride-or-die supplements that I take every single day. I have been using Guard of Life's probiotics for years now, and each of their probiotics have billions of diverse, clinically studied strands that like actually help promote digestive balance and immune health. 
They have a crazy amount of probiotics to choose from to help address your specific needs, which is so cool. They make a probiotic that works for everyone. I rotate a few different ones that they have. And after each bottle is done, I take a different one just to switch up the strands and what I'm taking. And they say that's pretty helpful um, to do so your body doesn't become like used to the same exact thing every time. I take one probiotic at night, about an hour or so after dinner, and I swear it helps keep my digestion regular, which knock on wood is something you do not take for granted, especially while being pregnant. My top three favorite probiotics that Garden of Life sells are the Dr. Formulated Probiotics Women's Daily Care with 40 billion CFUs, which does not have to be kept in the refrigerator. So if you're someone who is like traveling a lot or just always forget when it's in the refrigerator, you need to keep it next to your bed. Great option. I also love the Raw Probiotics Ultimate Care 100 Billions. That's the one that I'm taking right now. And when I'm not pregnant, I love their CBD probiotics, the stress relief. Oh my God, it's amazing. Also, even just like the capsule that it comes in is gorgeous for some reason. I link to all my favorites from Garden of Life over on my Amazon page and in the show notes for you guys too. All right, now let's hop into today's episode. Hello, Dr. Foreman. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to hearing from your followers and what kinds of questions they're having. And hopefully, um, you know, this can provide some advice for them and and maybe inspiration to to help um, take the next step forward in their fertility journey. Yeah, well, you know, I openly discuss like our um, relationship together and how you've helped us get pregnant with Ezra. You helped us with Ezra's little brother now and openly talking about fertility and our journey has just really, I think, you know, it's a, it was such a taboo topic when I was personally going through this. And when I would openly say it to friends and family friends, everyone kind of thought I was, oh my gosh, I can't believe Rachel is like telling people what she's doing. And you know, having these types of conversations and having such amazing professionals like yourself here to help guide us. I think that this episode will help so many families everywhere. And like I had mentioned to you before we started recording, I'm overwhelmed with the amount of inquiries and questions for you. Just people are scared. They're nervous. And I think right now is a really scary time um, in general. And excuse me, I'd love to have you open up just by introducing yourself and say who you are and what you do. Yeah, definitely. Thanks. And I also just want to say, you know, I think it's great that you have been open about it. We know that infertility is not that uncommon. Estimates of maybe one in eight couples experience infertility. Miscarriages are very common. And a lot of, you know, men and men, you know, are, you know, nervous about sharing this kind of experience, but really, we probably all have friends and family members who have been through something similar. And it's really helpful to have someone else to talk about it with. And so I think just letting people know that it's pretty normal, it's it's very common. And also, it's very, you know, manageable, whatever the situation is, you know, we have great techniques available now to help, whether it's single women, same sex couples, or couples struggling with infertility, we can help almost everyone, you know, again, especially if they're willing to take the next step with testing and different types of treatments that are available. So thanks for all that you're doing to raise awareness. It's really been helpful. I know your followers appreciate it and 
inspires a lot of them to keep going when they're feeling down. So um, again, my name is Dr. Eric Foreman. I'm the medical and laboratory director here at Columbia University Fertility Center. I've been here for about three years. In this role, I see patients you know, clinically um, with all types of causes of infertility and miscarriages. I also um, oversee the IVF laboratory. So my, my main interest is really in in vitro fertilization and how we can make that more successful and safer and more accessible for patients. Um, and some of your questions, you know, may touch on IVF and one type of treatment, but it's, it's definitely not the only one as we know. So yeah, I mean, that's me. And I'm, I have my own family. I have three children, you know, so I know, you know, how special it is to have children, how unique they all are. And I really, you know, want to see my patients have that, you know, amazing experience of being parents, whatever it takes. So my passion is really to, you know, take a personal interest in each patient, each couple, and also all of our providers at Columbia University Fertility Center feel the same way that, you know, it's not just like, cookbook, we look at prior testing, prior experience, and try to individualize the treatment and, and figure out a plan that makes sense to try to get to the goal of like safely having a child one at a time. That was something that actually when we came to see you guys that I remember leaving our like first consultation and saying to Jordan, like, we're seeing him, like, we're not going somewhere else because we had gone to a couple other um, fertility centers beforehand just from referrals from like my gynecologist at the time. And, you know, something that really stood out to me when we came to Columbia was that I remember you sat down with us. I still remember even like what I was wearing. It was so funny. And you had like a piece of like printer paper, like this eight and a half by 11. And you just kept asking me all these questions and you just like sketched out this piece of paper, which I still have saved on my phone and asked me so many questions. And you can tell that you were just like genuinely trying to get to know Jordan and I and like really customize like what's going to work for this couple. Like you wanted to know every detail of everything, which was so, so, so special. And it just makes you feel like you're in really good hands. So when a couple, when, like, when does a couple usually come to see you? Like during what phase is someone kind of like, it's time yeah. to go to Dr. Foreman or a fertility specialist? Yeah. I mean, so technically infertility is defined as trying to get pregnant for a year without success. So that's kind of technically when you get this diagnosis of infertility, but not everybody has to wait a year to see a doctor like me. It's also considered acceptable for women over 35, especially even after six months of trying, because we know that that um, age definitely plays a role in fertility and that women are born with all their eggs and gradually use them over time. And the eggs that are available in the later 30s and 40s, there tend to be fewer of them and the quality tends to decline. Again, there's always exceptions, but that's the kind of general rule. So, yeah. you know, waiting another six months, another year could have more of an impact on whether our treatments will ultimately be successful if you're in your later 30s versus like late 20s, early 30s. So that's sort of a big picture, like one year of trying in general, six months of trying over 35 um, for the female age primarily. But then there's other situations where people know that there might be an issue. Like in order to get pregnant, you have to be naturally, you have to ovulate. 
you have to release an egg each month. You know, there's different ways to detect that, which we can talk about, but really the best and simplest is just your menstrual cycles. If you don't get a regular cycle every month, you're probably not ovulating regularly. And so then you don't really need to wait a year um, because it's very unlikely that it's going to happen naturally if you don't have an opportunity every month and you can't time it. You know, you also need sperm to travel to the egg. And so some couples have difficulty having intercourse, sexual dysfunction, erectile dysfunction, or some men had cancer at a young age and had chemotherapy and they were told, you know, this might affect your fertility. Maybe they froze their sperm. Again, they can have a workup and see what's going on earlier because they have some, you know, idea that there's an issue. And then you also need, you know, the, the anatomy to work out where lopian tube has to be able to pick up an egg and egg and sperm have to meet up and the embryo has to implant in the uterus. So if a woman knows that she's had ectopic pregnancies or surgeries for endometriosis, then there may be, there may be a reason to think there is a problem with her fallopian tubes or if her bleeding pattern is really abnormal. There may be something going on inside the uterus that, that could be evaluated earlier. Um, and then finally, as I mentioned, you know, single women who are thinking about getting pregnant on their own, you know, with the use of a sperm donor or same-sex couples, you know, they can be a doctor like me really at any time to start planning what the next steps would be. Okay. Now you actually touched on a lot of things that we'll also get back to those topics in, in a couple of minutes, but I was actually going to ask you like for someone like me, I had hypothalamic amenorrhea and Jordan, and I tried for a year just because I, I mean, we started trying when I was 27. So at that age, I also didn't, or 26, I didn't feel very like rushed. Oh my God, I have to see a doctor ASAP. What would you say if so, if someone does have HA and they haven't had a period and they went off birth control, haven't had a period in like six months, would you say to come and see a reproductive endocrinologist at that time? Yeah. I mean, I think, or you could even start, you know, if you have a good OBGYN who, you know, you like you know, they can start a workup and see what's going on. But I, I not infrequently see women that go off the pill and don't get a period and they're kind of rushed off saying, oh, it just takes a while, which it can, but usually within a couple of months, you should go back to regular periods. So like six months without a period is not really normal or expected. Um, you know, and again, so... At that point, I would see your regular OBGYN or fertility specialist. And if, if your regular OBGYN kind of blows it up, then I think it's reasonable to maybe seek another opinion because there may be something going on and you don't necessarily have to wait another six months. I also think it's important to, to know that we don't think the birth control pill like causes this. It's just probably masking something when you're taking a pill you know, you're giving yourself hormones, you're taking them away. So the uterus is thickening a little bit, shedding the lining, and you're not ovulating, but you're getting a period. And then at some time, some, something else could be going on, whether it's polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS, or hypothalamic amenorrhea, that once you come off the pill, because now you're ready to see if you get pregnant naturally, then see what's really going on. But, but there's no evidence that the pill causes either of these things to happen. So, do, you, do you notice that a lot of your patients do come in and they were recently on the pill and haven't had a cycle after that? Um, 
I mean, it's uh, it's something that we see definitely again because you know the pill is a very reliable form of birth control if it's used correctly and it can regulate cycles. And so you know it's not it often coincides that women will stop taking pills because now she's ready to get pregnant. And again, then if she's not getting her period, she also wants to get pregnant. They're going to need help often from a doctor like me. So not the most common thing that we see, but definitely see this type of situation, you know, fairly often. Is there a most common like reason for fertility? Is that um, often? That's a good question. Um, you know, probably honestly, nowadays, the most common, you know, is what we might call like unexplained or age related. So you know, we know that over the last, you know, few decades that the average age, you know, that, that a woman will have her first baby has gotten older. Again, as I mentioned, it's just a normal part of reproductive aging that, that eggs supply and quality decline. So even if, if one is fertile, it gets more difficult to get pregnant as time goes by. So it's probably a combination of factors, both age-related on the female side, the male side. Um, but we see a lot of couples that are you know, in their late 30s, early 40s, and they've been trying for six months or a year or longer and having difficulty. Um, so that's, you know, probably the single most common cause. But, you know, if you really dig deep and, you know, evaluate the couple as a whole, usually a combination of factors where the sperm on testing doesn't look perfectly normal. There may be something about egg supply, a little bit on the lower side, um, age being a contribution. So often multiple things. There's not like one single you know, thing that is that the most common. So when patients come to see you, what are, and like, I, I know the answer to this because obviously I've done this a couple times now, but what are the first things that you test for? Like, what do you look for? Like, what's kind of like the checklist before? Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, we do. We do have a checklist and we call it that. Um, and I think it's good to be systematic like that. Um, you know, there, there are other approaches where, you know, someone may be not ready to really jump into full testing and they might do one test here and there. I just feel like, you know, sometimes, like I said, there's a combination of factors. So if you just do a semen analysis, even if it's abnormal, that doesn't, you know, give you a free pass that everything else must be normal, right? It might be that there's something abnormal there and there's something with the fallopian tube. So when I when we meet with a couple, we usually talk about at that point they've been trying for a while and time is a factor. We spend a few weeks or a month or so gathering a lot of information. The one is to get an assessment of a woman's egg supply, which we can we can get a pretty good sense of like quantity. Quality is much harder to gauge, really. And even quantity, you know, you have to be careful. It's not it's not so proven that even having a low supply necessarily causes infertility. So we do test like an ultrasound to look at the follicle count, a blood test called anti-mullerian hormone or AMH, which correlates with that follicle count, another hormone called follicle stimulating hormone and estrogen or estradiol. That's typically done on the second or third day of the period for women who have regular periods. And those are indicators that, you know, if AMH is low, it correlates with a low supply, but that does not necessarily mean that that's the cause of infertility. Or if a woman tests that you know, early on or before she starts trying, 
studies have shown that doesn't predict necessarily that she's going to have difficulty getting pregnant because when you try naturally, you're releasing one egg each month, whether your AMH is low, which would be like less than one or, or it's high, which would be less above four, say. But it does become an issue or a factor when we start to think about fertility treatments, get to later and making the best use of those eggs and follicles. So as a baseline, it's important for us to kind of know, you know, where we are, whether egg supply looks normal for a woman's age, if it's high for her age, that could go along with things like polycystic ovary syndrome, or it's low for her age, that's sometimes called diminished ovarian reserve. So we look at that with ultrasound and blood work. Then there's anatomy, and we have your favorite test, the HSG. Um, so this is a hysterosalpingogram, um, which, you know, even on our initial ultrasound, we can see the shape of the uterus, but really can't tell if the fallopian tubes are open. Again, that's not, that's not the most common cause of infertility, you know, by far, but it is a very significant one where, like, if the tubes are truly blocked, Pregnancy is probably not going to happen naturally, and we better to find that out, you know, early on. And I, I sometimes see where that's kind of bypassed, and then months later, something is found, and couples feel like they wasted time that they didn't know that early on. So this is a test that some gynecologists or reproductive specialists like me do. Sometimes it's a radiologist that does it. It really depends on practice setup if they have the equipment to do it. It involves um, injecting a dye, clear, non-toxic dye into the uterus with some pressure. That dye will travel through the uterus, through the fallopian tubes, and x-rays are taken. And you can see like where it traveled, and it can show you the shape of the uterus. And some women are just born with a different shape rather than kind of a classic like triangle-shaped uterus. Some women have a heart-shaped uterus. Some women have a division in the middle of the uterus called a septum. Sometimes there's growths inside like polyps or fibroids or even scarring. But that can be seen by looking at how the dye fills the urine cavity. But then maybe even more importantly, with, with pressure, if that dye travels through the fallopian tubes and spills out, then we know that the fallopian tubes are open. And so that's a test that can be, can be very uncomfortable. Um, for a few seconds while that dye is going in and, and it's crampy. For other women, it's not so uncomfortable. Um, I know for you, it was really uncomfortable. It really varies. Um, it's but, felt really crampy for me. Like it was the afterwards, I cramped for a couple hours, but the dye itself doesn't hurt. I just wasn't mentally prepared to know that it was going to be painful. So I like to always tell people like it sucks so that they prepare for the worst. But it's manageable. It's also, it's like you said, I'd rather know you could, it's tolerable pain, like that I would rather know early on than, than go through fertility treatment and then find that out that I should have tested that earlier. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I think that's important. Like, you know, knowing, you know, knowing what you should expect, you know, can really affect your experience. So, if you're not expecting it to be uncomfortable, then it could be really, shocking if it is and if you're expecting it to be really bad and you know, it might not be as bad as you expected so so a lot of women take like advil beforehand or ibuprofen that can be helpful and um and also it's you know for women who do have regular cycles it, the timing of that test is important it should be done before ovulation 
because if you ovulate, you know, maybe you'll get pregnant. You don't want to have dye and x-rays if a pregnancy might be happening. And it is safe. And there are even studies that suggest that there might even be a benefit that cycle of getting pregnant naturally. The dye might flush open the tube. Not something that we would do like as a treatment over and over again, but is safe to try naturally that same cycle. And we've definitely seen um, seen couples get pregnant in the same cycle as the HSG, even before they have to think about other fertility treatments. So that really that really covers you know the female side, basically egg supply and anatomy. And then again, even if we find that the fallopian tubes are you know blocked in some way, we still need sperm to work with. So a semen analysis, you know, is still, even though it's far from perfect, it's our best assessment of male fertility. And it's different in that men can um, produce sperm throughout their life, really, even into the 40s, 50s, even beyond. So whereas we know that egg supply is declining, that's not always the case. And it can fluctuate from day to day where like AMH should be pretty stable reflection of a woman's egg supply. You could have dramatically different um, sperm numbers from day to day. But we look at multiple parameters. We look at the volume of semen, the concentration of sperm, like how many millions there are per milliliter, what proportion are moving, what proportion are perfectly normally shaped. If something comes back abnormal, especially if it's you know very abnormal, recommended to repeat it because again, it can fluctuate from day to day. But if something is consistently abnormal, that's more predictive that that could be a contributing factor. And we sometimes even have reproductive urologists. And there's a couple of great reproductive urologists at Columbia. This is you know, a type of urologist that does specialized training in fertility. Like I'm an OBGYN who did more advanced training in reproductive endocrinology and fertility. So that's the basic fertility evaluation you know, for the male and female side. The rest of the checklist involves, you know, some other things that are sort of pre-pregnancy testing that, you know, after months or years of trying, I think it's, you know, kind of unfortunate if finally a pregnancy happens, and then a woman learns that she has like hypothyroidism or she's anemic or there's some, she has hepatitis or something she didn't know about. Wouldn't it be good to find that out before you're pregnant rather than after all those months of trying? Or a couple both carries some genetic condition, which could significantly affect the health of a baby. So before we embark on fertility treatment, we typically do infectious disease testing for both partners. And again, that's normally done at the first pregnancy visit. This way you have that even earlier. We check thyroid function, we check blood counts, immunity to certain you know, viruses like rubella, chickenpox, that could get a vaccine before you're pregnant, but once you're pregnant, they don't give those vaccines. So again, why not find out beforehand? And then I think a genetic carrier screening panel is something that we offer and recommend to all of our patients where you know, there's hundreds of genetic diseases that babies are still born with, some of which are even like lethal. KSACs, for example, babies don't survive if they get this disease. And um, if you find that a couple both carries a mutation for the same genetic condition, you know, there's an opportunity to at least discuss what the, you know, what that condition is, how serious it is, what are the options to prevent or get earlier treatment, you know, for their child. Now, 
when you have all of the information, you're obviously sh- sitting there with like a shit ton of information in front of you. So what makes you lean more towards starting with IUI and like that method versus IVF? Like, are there certain things, for example, if you have, if the male fertility is a huge factor, do you kind of say like, no, we can't do IUI. Like, let's go to IVF. Like, how do you, obviously yeah. IUI is a lot easier for many think, reasons. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's where like the individualized care comes in, you know, you don't want to just say everyone should do IVF, even though it is the single most effective treatment. It has a lot of advantages or you don't want to say necessarily that everyone should start with IUIs and then do IVF because for some couples, that's not the right option. So there are, I think, certain findings that would definitely lead to going directly to IVF. As you mentioned, severe male factor, again, if that's confirmed on multiple semen analyses, even, you know, testing with a reproductive urologist, if there's very low sperm count, IUI or timed intercourse, not likely to be successful. I would never say never. I've yeah. seen exceptions, but again, if you're trying to make the best use of your you know, reproductive time and maximize your chances in vitro fertilization with something called intracytoplasmic sperm injection or ICSI is what's recommended for really severe male factor because we do IUI, which is intrauterine insemination. We typically want to get millions of moving sperm placed inside a woman's uterus around the time she's ovulating. And for some guys, you know, and that's after washing and like processing the sample to enrich it with the more moving, better quality sperm. Some guys may start off with even like less than a million sperm. And so they're not going to get five to 10 million moving sperm for IUI. And the chances of success by placing such a low amount of sperm in the uterus are very low, but with ICSI, now they could have really excellent success. You know, there it really, you know, becomes more of a factor of how many eggs, how many embryos can we, so that's, you know, that's kind of a direct to IVF ICSI route. Tubal factor as well, if the fallopian tubes are really truly blocked, and again, no test is perfect, so the HSG, you know, should be interpreted. Sometimes there's false readings, but if a woman's fallopian tubes have been removed or damaged in some way, then again, natural attempts, IUI, are not likely to be successful. And IVF, that's what it was originally developed to overcome in the late 1970s. Women who had tubal factor really had no options at that time other than adoption. You know, now we have the ability to get eggs, and combine eggs and sperm together in the lab make embryos. So those are two two th- reasons to go directly to IVF. The genetic factor is also one to consider. You know, if a couple do both carry a mutation for a very severe disease and they are nervous about taking a say 25% chance that their baby would have that disease, which is how recessive conditions work. Or sometimes an individual woman or husband partner carries a disease that's that's what we call dominance, where it's like a 50-50 chance, they would pass it to their child and they know what it's like to live with it and they just don't want to pass that on. Then we can do in vitro fertilization with pre-implantation genetic testing where we can actually make embryos, test them, and selectively put an embryo back that wouldn't have that particular disease. So those couples might not even have infertility. They might sometimes they do and they learn this along the way. Sometimes they're doing fertility treatment specifically for a genetic reason. 
you know, and then outside of those, I think there's options, you know, if it's like mild male factor or age related or unexplained, then it's really an individualized discussion that there's a lot of factors that go into it. You know, what is the couple's age? How many children do they want? What are their thoughts on risk of multiples? You know, because when we do IUI, typically we give medications like Clomid or Letrozole or even injectable FSH to try to either get a woman to ovulate who doesn't ovulate regularly or get a woman to ovulate maybe more than one egg if they've tried for a long time with her one egg naturally being released. And that's all to try to raise the chances to have more eggs and better timing. But that does come with a risk of twins. Some couples think like that's really what they want and they'd be happy with it. But it's always higher risk. It's a higher risk pregnancy for women, for their babies, you know, and so that's a whole nother discussion. But there's some situations where it just wouldn't be safe to have twins if a woman's uterus is a certain shape, if she's had a prior preterm delivery. Some couples are just, again, really nervous about the prospects of having twins. So, you know, if they're not comfortable with a 5 to 10% risk of twins, then in vitro fertilization has the ability to transfer one embryo at a time. If they want multiple children one at a time, in vitro fertilization also has the ability if things go well, to have other embryos frozen for the future. So that's where age comes in, where if a couple is in their like late 30s, early 40s, and they want two children, even if IUI would work, you know, then is it going to work again two years later? It might, maybe they'll even get pregnant naturally, but if it doesn't, now our treatments are much more difficult to get to work. But if you have embryos frozen that were sometimes even genetically tested and known to be normal, you know, then you could come back years later. It's not a guarantee it's going to work, but it's going to have a higher chance than trying something like IVF at a later age. So, so these are discussions, again, there's no like right or wrong answer in some cases. Some couples really just want to see if they can get pregnant more naturally in their own body and are willing to try IUI for a while. Some couples are really scared of twins and want to jump more directly to IVF or they want to have extra embryos frozen for the future. Yeah, we were definitely nervous when we thought we were maybe having twins for that two. That two-week wait was longer for me than the two-week wait to find out if I was pregnant. Um, Especially after having one baby and knowing you know, how much work and how demanding it is then gives you perspective. So I, I try to bring that to my patients. I know the first time around probably would have been excited about twins, but the second time around, we realize it's it's really overwhelming. And, I, don't uh, I remember you standing there, you're like, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? And I was like, yeah, it's fine. Like, we'll figure it out. If it happens, it happens. But yes, not many would have that. And again, we're always happy, you know, if twins happen, we're happy for that couple. And there's great, you know, obstetricians and high-risk obstetricians that can take good care of you. So it's not like it's a bad thing, but there are more risks of like preterm, preterm labor, preterm delivery, being put on bed rest, the babies having to be in the NICU, preeclampsia, all kinds of things are just more risky. Needing a C-section, all of that is riskier with in pregnancies and then more than twins you know we've really like you know we were talking 20 years ago there used to be a significant risk of even triplets with fertility treatments but almost completely eliminated that by just being really cautious 
not going forward if it's too risky. Now for IUI, and I mean, we don't have to go into the deep, like I've spoken a lot about this in other episodes, like the process and what I did and like exactly what it is, et cetera. But now what does, does it increase the chances of having sex significantly? Like why would someone, like a lot of people are like, well, wouldn't you just have sex then or intercourse or whatever? Like why IUI? Like what does it add any more like percentage chances that it, it would be successful? And it does, especially for couples who have been trying, you know, and and there's maybe like a mild male factor on the semen analysis, or they've been trying and it's unexplained. You know, we just can't see, even if the semen analysis looks normal, we can't see how many of those sperm are actually getting through the cervix, through the to the end of the fallopian tube. And so getting more moving sperm in the right place at the right time does improve the chances. So you know, for couples who've been trying for a year or two and, and the testing comes up more or less normal, some of those couples would get pregnant if they just kept trying longer. But a lot of them wouldn't. And there's no crystal ball to know, like, are we going to be in the group that does or doesn't? So if we think about like peak fertility, we think maybe 25% of couples, if everything is perfect, get successfully pregnant in a given month. That's why if two or three months go by and a couple's not pregnant, that's not a reason to jump to see a doctor like me. You know, if six months go by, that's starting to get more concerning that, you know, majority of couples would have been pregnant by then if everything was normal. Again, by a year, more than 90% should have been. So if a year or two has gone by, it's suggesting that the underlying chance is less than that 25%. And it's probably more like percent or five percent so another year could go by and maybe a third of those couples would get pregnant but two-thirds wouldn't but when we do treatments like iui one getting more than one egg gives a better chance that one of those eggs will be good you know timing it better you know can help and then getting sperm at the right place at the right time the chance of of pregnancy with iui may be back to 15 to 20 percent which again, doesn't sound so great, but if you compare it to like 3%, pretty good. And if you could do it month after month after month, because it is less invasive than like IVF, you don't need a procedure with anesthesia, then cumulatively you have a pretty good chance, you know, after three or so months of trying that approach. So, so that, so again, I think it is a strategy that's helpful, but in some situations, some couples do start with timed intercourse and and sometimes that works. And again, especially if time is not as big of a factor in like a younger age group, normal egg supply, some couples want to try less invasive things first. And sometimes it works. And if it doesn't, then they can add IUI. And if that doesn't work, then they could go to IVF. So there's really, again, different priorities. Like if the priority is to see if you can get pregnant with the least intervention, you might take that kind of stepwise approach. If your priority is, you know, to be pregnant ASAP, you know, then I would suggest kind of advancing into one of these treatments, which also, you know, when you do IUI, you can also try naturally. It's not like an either or. You yeah. can try leading up to it. You can try after the IUI. We don't really know which sperm actually is the one that got there first. You know, we assume it was probably from the IUI, but but not, we don't know. So, so I think it just attacking this problem from multiple different Front, getting more eggs, better timing, right hormone environment, trying to be sure that there's sperm there. 
Now for both from an IUI and IVF perspective, that two-week wait, so after either you had the sperm you know, inseminated into you or after you've had the embryo implanted and you're waiting for those two weeks or whatever to see if you were pregnant, is there anything that you can do to help you know, increase a successful implantation? Or, and also, most importantly, are there, is there anything that you shouldn't do during those two weeks? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the most difficult part of the fertility treatment, whether it's, you know, just waiting to see if it worked or nervous about multiples. It's, you know, there's really, there's not much you can do, which, you know, you want to like take action and make it stick. But there's really, again, I don't think there's anything proven um, in terms of like lifestyle or diet or supplements. At that point, I would just try to feel like you've done everything you can and kind of out of your hands. I mean, usually we recommend, you know, act as if you're pregnant. So at that point, you know, don't have alcohol anymore. You know, that's one of you know, the only kind of dietary recommendation I would say, but I would just really try to, you know, not obsess about it too much and, and just try to get through that, that waiting period, whether it's, you know, meditation, yoga, like acupuncture, like none of these things I think necessarily make it more likely to work, but it can make the waiting less stressed. Yeah. Um, if anything, it just relaxes you to get your mind off of it a little. It's like a distraction. Exactly. A bit. Now you briefly mentioned that like diet and lifestyle. So do you think that women and men, their overall diet and lifestyle can impact fertility for them? Like if you exercise a lot, yeah. like eating mm -hmm. habits. So I mean to some extremes, I mean I think for the majority of people that are, you know, in a pretty normal weight, that are eating a pretty healthy, balanced diet, that exercise to some extent, that have some stress in their life, which we all do, like I, don't, I, I think there's a natural tendency to try to want to blame yourself or your partner or find some reason, but there's just not a lot of evidence that like if your diet, if your exercise regimen, it's your stress at work. Again, we just don't know what we're going to find. If we find that the fallopian tubes are blocked, probably wasn't any of those things. So I think, you know, for the most part, those kind of things, it's always good to be healthy, exercise, you know, to have a good diet. But I don't think that those are leading causes of infertility or modifying those things are likely to overcome it if there really is something deeper going on. You know, there are some extremes, obviously. So women who have eating disorders or exercise excessively, sometimes that will affect what we call the HPO access, the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian access to the point that they're not ovulating regularly anymore. And sometimes, you know, that's, I think, the reason why that's happening. Sometimes we're not sure. We're like, a woman's in a normal weight category. She's exercising a normal amount, but for some reason, her internal like thermostat is just not, you know, not thinking it's the right time to ovulate and get pregnant. I mean, it kind of makes sense if you think about just sort of evolution. Believe in that that you know, if you if a woman was starving, that wouldn't be a good time to get pregnant. She should, you know, take care of herself. She might have other children to take care of. And when, you know, food is, you know, more plentiful and she's got more like bodily fat, like the brain would sense that it would be a better time to ovulate. 
you know, now though we have, you know, some women in our modern society that, you know, exercise a lot and maybe they're a little bit underweight, but it's not a famine. They can go to Whole Foods or wherever and get food and I think can be healthy and have a healthy pregnancy, but it's really hard to get their brain to sense that and get back to normal ovulation. That's where some of our ovulation induction techniques come in. So again, that's very stressful because, or you know, frustrating because sometimes in those situations, even gaining weight or exercising less, which is hard to do again, because these women again are usually healthy in normal category. Again, like they could have a healthy pregnancy, and then even if they change their lifestyle, it doesn't guarantee that they're going to start ovulating. And on the other end of the spectrum, having a high BMI, being overweight, that's associated with polycystic ovary syndrome, which is another kind of complicated condition that, that we deal with. And women with PCOS, they sometimes often are not ovulating regularly or at all. Sometimes working on their diet and exercise can restore more normal ovulation. There also are some medications that can help women use insulin better and make less of their own insulin. So there are some lifestyle changes that can help women with PCOS to ovulate more regularly. But again, it's not guaranteed and it could be frustrating that women could take all these measures and still not be ovulating. And we have have medications that can help if getting pregnant, you know, quicker is the priority. You know, and then there's things like obviously smoking cigarettes and tobacco exposure. There's toxins that are not good for our health in general and cause birth defects or shouldn't be done in pregnancy. Even leading up to pregnancy, there's some thought that it can affect egg supply and quality and sperm quality as well. So I definitely would, you know, encourage like not smoking. And even on that side, the good news is like that's not a permanent thing. We think that, you know, the follicles that mature over a few months, sperm take a few months to mature, you know, so that can get out of a woman or a man's system within a couple a few months that um, that's something reversible that you can change to improve your own health, health of your pregnancy, but maybe even your chance of getting pregnant. Now what exactly is it PCOS and like what does this mean for fertility? Like would they always struggle to get pregnant or do sometimes you have PCOS and you get pregnant and you right. like, okay. Um good question. So and it's 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 a confusing topic and I see women all the time that have been told conflicting things like like they would never get pregnant or like they have big cysts in their ovaries. There's a lot of misconceptions. So PCOS, it's, it's a confusing name because when you hear cyst, you think about like something big and painful, that's a cyst. But actually the follicles that I talked about earlier, little, I think I talked about, I mentioned a woman's born with all of her eggs. They're in these little things called follicles. Follicles, a little tiny cyst. So it's a normal kind of cyst. When we look at a woman's ovaries on ultrasound, we can see follicles that have gotten to a certain stage that they're visible but there's usually like thousands of other tiny ones that we can't see. But a woman with PCOS might have dozens of tiny follicles that are there. So they have eggs, they have even a lot of eggs, but 
but there's again some disconnect like with the timing of recruiting a follicle to grow and mature and ovulate so um but that's what gives pcos the name that the ovaries tend to have this appearance of having lots of small follicles nothing to do with like a large cyst a ruptured cyst a painful cyst that's totally something separate so there's like there's not one test that it's not like you can do a blood test and say i have pcos it's a syndrome it's a consensus there's different groups of um of doctors specialists who've gotten together over the years and said like this is what we think characterizes the pcos but it's probably not one thing there's a spectrum there's some women with pcos who are thin some women with pcos who are overweight but the the things that go into this diagnosis, there's really three pieces to it. One is having irregular cycle. That's probably like the hallmark of it. So not getting a period or having infrequent periods, like 40, 50, 60 days or being all over the place. So that's one. Second, what we call hyperandrogenism, which means like higher androgens are male hormones, like testosterone or other hormones in that family, which all women have some testosterone and men have estrogen, but the relative proportion of those hormones can shift. So if women have features of higher androgens, that could be a blood test showing higher testosterone than normal. That could be um, excess hair growth, like facial hair, that's called hirsutism. Um, it could be acne, it could be even hair loss. Um, so those are hyperandrogenism, and then there's the polycystic ovary appearance. If a woman has two out of those three things, that's you know by the most common criteria called the Rotterdam criteria, that would give you the diagnosis of PCOS. That doesn't, AMH isn't in there, although some people think you know that may, there may be a very high AMH goes along with it. Even insulin resistance or BMI is not technically part of it, but there are things that, that also go along with it. So there are some women with you could you could have fairly regular periods, but have some of the other features of PCOS, like the polycystic ovaries, hirsutism. And so some of those women will get pregnant without assistance, where you could have irregular periods and just be fortunate that you time it right and it's a good egg. And some women never get a period and then boom, they're pregnant. But a lot of women with PCOS will have difficulty because they're either not ovulating, difficult to time course when they're ovulating the hormone environment surrounding ovulation might not be ideal if there's higher androgen okay that yeah that was i could was overwhelmed with like the influx of pcos related questions just people saying i have pcos like will i ever be able to get pregnant and i just never yeah. like do you think when you see a patient that has pcos you're not like you're still you're very positive in general i would say yeah but you're like, I mean, um, if anything, I'm, I mean, I'm optimistic. Most women with PCOS, again, if they're willing to try medications to induce ovulation, once we get, once we restore ovulation, they have a really good prognosis and they have eggs and there's usually good eggs there. So it may take a lot of work. Sometimes that stepwise approach, it might be one medicine doesn't work, a different medicine, kind intercourse might not work, IUI might be. Even that might not work, or maybe we can't safely get them to ovulate only one or two because they have so many, and we even have to think about IVF. But ultimately, 
the vast, vast majority of them can get successfully pregnant. So I'm, I almost never tell someone like they can't get pregnant. And I hear, you know, people saying that someone told them that in the past and that's always upsetting. Like, so they might, you might need help, but there's help available. Now, premature ovarian insufficiency, is that the premature ovarian insufficiency? Yeah, I mean, so, so again, you know, as we mentioned earlier, that a woman's born with her follicles and over time they gradually decline. And the average age of menopause when there's basically, you know, no more follicles or eggs around 51, that means half of women it's older than that, half of women it's less than that. Some women that even happens before age 40. So if that's looking like it might be happening before age 40, that's kind of POI. You know, if egg supply, if a woman's ovulating, but her AMH is low, that we kind of call more EOR, or diminished ovarian reserve. Um, so POI, you know, again, it could be you know, that there's irregular or longer getting periods. And then on ultrasound, there may be very few or even no follicles seen. That doesn't necessarily mean there's no eggs left. There could be some, there's just so very few of them. AMH is usually would be very low, like even undetectable ranges. And then really the, the most characteristic thing would be FSH being high because that FSH hormone, you know, unlike the hypothalamic amenorrhea where that axis isn't working, the axis should be normal. And so the brain wants there to be estrogen, wants to ovulate, but if there just aren't follicles there, FSH will rise. And so a high FSH is kind of indicative of POI. Um, and so, you know, that's a very challenging situation because we have limited options. We can't really make new eggs. We can only kind of work with what's there and make better use of them. Some women with POI will get pregnant even naturally. Like I've, I've seen it and studies suggest maybe as many as 5% that there might still be some eggs there and they still might be relatively young and they might just ovulate and be fortunate. But there's no treatments that we have to offer that necessarily improves on that, just hoping that they get lucky. There are some genetic reasons why that might happen. Most of the time, there might be autoimmune reasons. There might be medical reasons, like a woman may have been diagnosed with cancer and had chemotherapy and that depleted her egg supply. And so it's then not so surprising. But, um, but we, we typically will do an evaluation of potential causes of POI, but it's really usually not reversible. That's where what we call third-party reproduction comes in, where woman's uterus and overall health may be perfect. It's just there's not the eggs anymore to work with. And so using eggs donated from an anonymous woman who's willing to go through basically the IVF process, but the eggs you know go to another couple or woman sometimes it's a known donor like a friend or family member but you know we've helped many many couples achieve a healthy family if they're not able to work with their own eggs similarly for sperm there's some guys that have azospermia there's different reasons for that sometimes we can get sperm sometimes a urologist can find them surgically but sometimes it's just not possible and donor sperm can be used 
with IUI or IVF, depending on the situation, and they can conceive with donor sperm. And then also another form of third-party reproduction barrier. There's some women born without a uterus or had their uterus removed for some reason, or maybe have some very serious medical condition that you know pregnancy is, as you know, a big impact you know on your body and a woman has like a major heart issue and may not be safe for her to be pregnant and deliver, but she could go through IVF and get her eggs and make embryos. Someone else may be willing to carry the baby for her. So we, that's where I said earlier, like if you're willing to do whatever it takes to have a child, to have a family, there's almost always something that we can offer. Yeah, it's so wild how everyone's journey is just truly so based off of you know, their, their bodies and what they're going through. Now, when, after someone sees you for IVF or IUI, you know, we almost said like, okay, I'll see you in a couple of years. And like, obviously deep down, I was like, maybe I won't have to, like, maybe I'll be able to conceive naturally. And it, it wasn't the case, which I love coming to see everyone at Columbia. Like it was great. Mm-hmm. To see like Jenny and, and Gertrude and everyone, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. What is like, like, what is the likelihood that once you see a patient, Let's for IUI, like a similar situation to me where I don't have any, any embryos frozen. It was a lot less invasive. What are the chances that you think they'll usually be able to conceive naturally the second time or third time around? Yeah, I mean, like a lot of things, it really depends on the situation. So, um, you know, if it, um, if it was a situation where like ovulation is the main issue, whether HA or PCOS, then sometimes that improves, but often it doesn't. So they still may need help to ovulate. Pretty high percentage, I would say. You know, if it's more unexplained, then I think it depends, you know, on really age. Like if they were already in their mid to late 30s, they just you know, might not want to wait too long because time is a factor. So maybe they give it a few months, maybe six months, but there's a high chance they're going to have to come back. You know, if they're in a younger age group, you know, maybe they can now, they know they have a baby, they're not in as much of a rush and they could give it more time. Like we said, some of those, some couples that we IUI, you know, might've gotten pregnant naturally. We just don't know. And and if they're in the group that doesn't, years go by, but some of those couples, you know, get pregnant on their own, even after IVF, I've seen it many times. You know, I don't think it, I don't think it, makes them more fertile. You know, we know with time that doesn't really happen, but it's just that there is, you know, unless the tubes are blocked or there's very, very little sperm, there's always some chance and it could happen naturally and give it enough time, it, it may. So it really depends on the situation. You know, some couples have done IVF and have embryos frozen, they may be more inclined to like plan it and just come back and eat yeah. Doesn't doesn't always mean that just because you have to have fertility treatment for your first child or your second child that the next one going to have to depends on the same. I always say that that's why you have to find the center that like you genuinely love the people and trust them because it just makes it more enjoyable to go. Like mm-hmm. I like love coming to you. I actually haven't been to the doctor in seven mm-hmm. weeks and I'm like counting down till Monday to go see the doctor again. Oh wow! Yeah. Yeah, because it can be, you know, a lot of visits and sometimes multiple cycles, like trying different things. So it should be a place that you feel comfortable, that you can 
communicate with the employee that you know they're tailoring the treatments for you and your partner. Hundred percent. Now, egg freezing. How do you know, like, if this is something you should do, particularly for women who say are in their thirties, they're not married, but like they know they might want to have kids someday. I know some of my friends are in their mid thirties, not in a relationship, very, very ambitious and career focused. And, you know, some of them have frozen their eggs and they've made that decision. And anytime someone asks me, I'm like, I can't make that decision for you, but Mm -hmm. I always say there's no harm. Like it'll hurt. Like I can't say it can't hurt because obviously it'll Mm -hmm. hurt a little Mm -hmm. process, but what are your thoughts on egg freezing in general for your like, you know, either you're married and you want to wait later on or you're, or you're single, like. Yeah. Again, another, another area where I think taking, you know, an individualized approach and that's an area where you can be a doctor like me whenever you're ready to talk about it. But I think some people say everybody should freeze their eggs. I don't necessarily agree with that because, you know, if egg supply is normal and you're in your twenties or you're in a serious relationship, then there's, you know, a higher chance you won't need those eggs. And not that it's wrong, it does, you know, I would let a woman do that if she felt she wanted more options for the future. But I wouldn't say like you have to freeze. Okay. But as as time goes by, you know, there's two factors. One, as time goes by, if you freeze your eggs, you're probably gonna have fewer of them than if you did it earlier. And the quality of those is going to be lower, but also the chance that you're going to need to use them is going to be higher. So those are the kind of things that I think we have to balance. And so, and then there's also just, you know, financially, because usually not covered by insurance, there are some really great newer types of insurances. There's some like companies that are really forward thinking that have given benefits to let women freeze their eggs and have more options for later. So that's great. I mean, so if it's covered or it's financially not such a big impact, it's a very safe process. It's a couple of weeks of visits, blood work, ultrasounds, injections, and then a procedure that where we extract the eggs and then freeze them. And then hormones go back to normal. You go back to your normal life. So it's very safe and it's not so invasive. But for some women, you know, that is a lot. You know, if they're really you know, scared of needles or don't want to have anesthesia for the procedure. but I think with the right counseling and talking through it, most everyone can get through it. So I think, you know, as you're getting to your mid thirties, that's a point where egg supply tends to decline more quickly. So you look at like egg number and success of treatments like IVF, pretty stable, you know, although it it gradually declines, but early thirties, pretty stable. You do IVF at 31 or 32, or 33, it's about the same chance of success. Um, the chance of any given egg or embryo being genetically normal is pretty similar. Once you get to 37, 38, 39, 40, like there's a significant decrease in the success of our treatments. There's a higher proportion of the eggs that are going to be genetically abnormal and not able to make a healthy baby, and you're going to expect fewer of them. But I think if you're approaching the mid 30s, and you think that there's a chance that it's going to be years before you may be able to even try for pregnancy, definitely reasonable to think about freezing your egg. Again, even if you're fertile, okay, I always talk through like what's the possibility maybe that woman will meet a partner 
again, even then it might be a year or two before they're ready to try, but maybe they'll get pregnant quickly and never need those eggs. Again, I've really not had a woman come back and regret that she froze her eggs and then didn't need them. But we are seeing more and more women coming back to use their eggs to try to have a second or third child because now they're starting out a little bit later. So even if you do, you know, get pregnant at 35, 36, now when you're 38 or 39 or 40 and you're trying for the second or third baby, you may have difficulty and having eggs frozen from when you were like 32. Not a guarantee that they're going to work, but it's helpful. It gives you more chances. So I think, you know, if if you think you want multiple children, you think you might not start that until a little bit later in life, then egg freezing is a great, great option to try to improve the chances that you're going to be able to have family size that you desire with a future partner. I always talk about the possibility of using donor sperm. Some women just are at that point, at a certain point, they want to have a baby with their own eggs. And the only way to really know that that's going to happen for sure is to actually do it and have a baby. So some women, a big decision, but some are ready to make that leap and get donor sperm and either IUI and just see if they can be pregnant and have a baby. Some women are not really in a position or ready to do that on their own, but they may, instead of freezing eggs, make embryos and freeze embryos, knowing that you have more knowledge about embryos and eggs, because eggs still have a long way to go. They have to survive thawing and fertilize and develop, but embryos have already kind of made it to that stage and they have a higher chance of planting. So I have this kind of discussion, you know, what's the priority? Is it to have a baby with your own eggs? Ready to do that now or soon? Or is it really to preserve the chances of having a child with a future partner or multiple children with a future partner? And then we look at things like age and egg supply and, and their you know, insurance status and see if it makes sense to freeze eggs. And some women even do more than one round of egg freezing that they feel more comfortable with the number of eggs that they have. Wow. Well, it is absolutely amazing what you and your colleagues and everyone are able to do. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time to share all of your wisdom and everything. Mm-hmm. But I have, believe it or not, like double the amount of questions left, but I know. Well, I would be, I would be happy to come back another time um, (laughs) or to focus more on specific topics that might be better. So thank you for having me. And again, thanks for everything that you're doing to raise awareness in this area and to normalize the, the process of fertility testing and treatment. And, you know, we have, again, like I said, great options, whatever the situation is. There's always something that you can overcome and have a family. No, 100%. And I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't have a doctor like you that made me positive and you know gave me a good experience. So um, if you want to tell everyone where they could find you with like your Instagram. Um, yeah. We'll link everything. In the so, um, yeah. So, um, so again, I'm at Columbia University Fertility Center. We're at Columbus Circle. We have a great group of 10 different doctors, you know, so again, there's different personalities and interests and we have all different kinds of providers. We all have a similar philosophy and I think you can have great results with any of us. So my my 
Instagram is Eric Foreman MD at E R I C F O R M A N M D, and I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. So follow and feel free to ask questions, and happy to come back anytime. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you.